Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. This morning, we are celebrating Black History Month, and the theme is resistance how we black folks resist racism. And today we have Renee Hatcher, who is a law professor, and she comes from a long line of lawyers. Her father was a lawyer and a politician, and both of her sisters are attorneys. And she is with the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's with this Community Enterprise and Solidarity Economy Law Clinic. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for taking out your busy schedule to be here with us. Tell me, what was it like growing up in a family where your father was the mayor of Gary, Indiana? And what was it like at the dinner table? Do you guys talk sports or business <laughs> or politics? What's talk? No, always politics. Um, and some always often local politics, but also national politics. And not in a vertical and like grounded way, just I think the issues of the day were always high on my father's mind or what was happening in the city of Gary, what was happening nationally, what were the current issues. And so a lot of times we were, you know, talking politics or at least engaging with him as he was talking <laughs> politics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And did your mother engage in those conversations too? Was she an attorney? No, so my mother was a music teacher, but absolutely, like, she, in some ways, I think, is someone who's, like, always very passionate about inequality, about the ways in which, like, people don't have access to the things that they need. So she was always someone who really always highlighted a class analysis for me. And, you know, my father was in the house with all women, so I had two sisters and my mother, so sometimes... He would always begin the conversation, and I think a lot of times it was difficult for him to get a word to get in. Many words in, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, now you were the youngest, so did they let you talk? Yes, yes, I was a very rambunctious child. I had, a, you know, a lot to say, but you know, I, I really am grateful for um, my foundation and the grounding I got from my parents because I think that is in part what helped me develop my own analysis and also kind of led me to the work that I do now, but more so just, you know, really having an understanding of what's happening right in our country and trying to think about systems and also how do we make change and how the struggle for black freedom right, mm -hmm. was passed down and how it needs to be. So that black freedom, how it needs to be passed down, I is that how you got into the director of the Community Enterprise and Solidarity Economy Law Clinic? I'm just going to call it Law Clinic. Okay. 
<laughs> that's fine. That's fine. And we call it CSEC for short. I think that's I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, so I grew up in Gary in the late 80s, early 90s. This was after my father had been mayor for 20 years. Um, and his administration was in large part focused on trying to provide resources to black folks in the city, to low income folks in the city. So he focused a lot on affordable housing initiatives. And really, his administration was the first time that black residents had opportunities to get jobs at City Hall. You know, he in large part was responsible for actually desegregating the city so black folks could live where they wanted in Gary. And I think a lot of my own political activation and understanding came from growing up in Gary, you know, decades later and trying to really understand the type of disinvestment, neglect that um, the city has suffered and the way in which structures kind of perpetuate that, right? So that kind of led me and I was really interested really only to go to law school to figure out ways to make change. Hmm. And so thinking about, you know, taking those skill sets and the things that I learned in, in law school and trying to find a way to actually address what I saw as like the systemic problems of cities like Gary, of Rust Belt cities, of majority black cities, where um, an industry, you know, might be built on a specific industry, for example, like the auto industry in Detroit, Gary is very much built around U.S. steel mill. And so really just trying to think about how do we fundamentally do economic development, community economic development differently, where it actually puts the livers of power in the hands of actual residents so they can get the things that they need and have access to quality jobs. So I want to come back and talk about power. That's a word I like. But before that, this economic this disparity that you're talking about, can you talk about the wealth gap between white families and black families in the U.S.? Yeah. So I will tell you, Verna, I don't like talking about the wealth gap in part. And I'll tell you why, because okay. I don't necessarily know that the wealth gap is how we should be marking progress specifically for black folks in this country. I think the wealth gap obviously is compounded by the enslavement of black folks, the institution of slavery, and subsequently Jim Crow, the way in which like, discrimination is very much embedded in our systems now. And I think about, you know, in terms of thinking about what it would look like for people to thrive, for black folks to thrive, to have the things, access to, to what they need, to not necessarily have to go to two or three jobs simply to be able to live a dignified life. I don't think that is really about accumulating wealth. It's more so uh, it would either require us to redefine what wealth is or like think about a different kind of goalpost, right? Like, do people, are people thriving? Do they have access to what they need? Do, do they live in healthy communities and neighborhoods? Do they have some power and control over their lives? Do they have ways in which to meaningfully participate? So those are the things that I like to think about more so than the wealth gap, because I don't necessarily know that that translates to the things that we actually, you know, our wildest dreams related to liberation, to the black freedom movement. Okay. I like it. I like it. But, you know, you mentioned enslavement and Jim Crow were they would not allow us to get wealth. They kept us down, kept labor down. And that's what also happens in cities like Gary. It's a labor thing and the capitalists against labor. But there is also white people not wanting to see blacks strive. 
and that's why Tulsa, Oklahoma happens, or uh, co-ops that were striving a lot of times, black co-ops that were striving the day didn't want people to know they were striving because folks could come in and, and do some harm. Can you talk to that about that a little bit? Yeah, so, so I think throughout the history, there's always been a backlash, right, to black success, whether that's through kind of traditional means of entrepreneurship, certainly to cooperative development, Jessica Gordon-Impart writes about this extensively in her book related to kind of the periods where we see lots of activity around cooperative development in black communities and inevitably the backlash, right, which can take the form of lynchings, which can take the form of, um, you know, you mentioned the situation in, in Tulsa where they burned down entire communities, race riots that, you know, happened here in Chicago in 1919 and a number of cities and black communities that in large part were a direct response to black advancement and, you know, in place. And so, you know, that has always been one of the things that we've had to contend with in terms of really thinking about how do we not only build institutions that serve us, that help us thrive, that allow us to build the kinds of lives and communities that we want, but also how do we protect it? And I, th I feel like that's an ongoing conversation with folks who are doing different kinds of work around black land sovereignty or black food sovereignty, really trying to think about how do we protect what we build mm -hmm. and are very intentional about that. Build it and protect it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So how did you decide to go into law? Was it just a family that said? No, it was... You know, I, I think in part, I imagine my father had some uh, some thought in my mind was about the way in which he was able to make change, not necessarily as a lawyer, even though he was a lawyer for a number of years and did a lot of progressive work. He was like the, the uh, attorney for the local NAACP chapter. He was, you know, a, a part of the group of lawyers who went down for to Mississippi for Freedom Summer and subsequently uh, to, to bring some civil rights lawsuits against the conditions in the South. So he had done a lot of activist work with his law degree. And I think in part, I imagine that law school would provide a route for me to figure out how to make change. So there was that more than anything. And then I think, you know, after law school, a lot of my first years in practice, I was at the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and really trying to figure out like how I could contribute or what I thought my contributions could be also what were the needs right in the spaces that I w were in at that time uh, and trying to figure out what that looks like and so I, I will tell you like part of the reason why I love the work that I do is because it's much more creative for example than being a litigator who's working on impact litigation or someone who's representing black folks who have experienced employment discrimination, right? Because in those situations, a lot of times what you're doing is you are reacting to, to conditions that exist or harms that have already happened, you mm -hmm. know, to folks. And I think in the work that I do with co-ops or community owned or controlled institutions, it allows us to be much more forward thinking and really trying to figure out how do we, you know, for a client, how do we build what ultimately the vision that they have come up with for themselves and their community creative fantastic okay so gary indiana when i first heard of gary it's because this singer was from gary this young guy <laughs> i didn't know anything about gary before michael jackson the jackson five yep 
I think a lot of people know Gary for that reason. Yes, Michael Jackson is from Gary, Indiana. Jackson 5 comes out of Gary, Indiana. And also they had their start locally in Gary at talent shows at the high school that I attended in Gary. And so, yes, that's, a, I think, a, an important part of our history. You know, Gary is also really, I think, a special place for a number of other reasons as well. We have a rich history in co-op development that was a base in the Black community in Gary, which I would love for us to talk about at some point. But then also, you know, one of the things that I think Gary should be known for and thinking about my, you know, carrying on my, my father's legacy was that it was the city in which the first black mayor was elected. And not only that, it was the center of you know, black politics in 1972 during the National Black Political Convention, which I hope we also can get into later. But, yes, Gary, Indiana. And let's get into it later. We're going to take our first break, and we're going to come back and talk more to you, more about Black resistance and self-determination. We'll be right back. News Talk, 1450 WOL AM, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op, and I'm speaking with Renee Hatcher, who is an attorney in Chicago, grew up in Gary, Indiana. We were just talking that uh, I only heard about Gary because Michael Jackson and Jackson 5 was from <laughs> there, and her mother taught music. And uh, so Yes, Vernon, my mother actually taught both Michael and a number of the Jackson children as a public you know, school teacher teaching music in Gary. While they were still in public school, okay. before they had made it big. So she's the reason they made it big. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, you didn't say that. <laughs> you didn't say that. So let's talk about the history of co-ops in Gary. What, what is that history? Yeah, I think one of the things that I learned probably around college and just trying to uncover some of the history of the place that I grew up in and thought I knew a lot about was learning about the cooperative development that had happened in Gary during the Great Depression or during the 1930s. So Gary had one of the most successful cooperative grocery stores and networks at that time. And it was it was called the Consumer Cooperative Trading Company. And it started in the 30s as folks were losing their jobs at the steel mill and the recession was kind of taking hold. A number of, you know, 10 to 15 families, black families got together in part just because, you know, folks had less money. They were mm -hmm. trying to find ways to really you know, make do with what they had. So they started a buying club just amongst those 10 to 15 families. And within two years time, they created a cooperative grocery store. They also had more. They had hundreds of members. And a lot of their organizing work took place in you know, Roosevelt High School, which folks from Gary like will recognize immediately. Um, so they were doing kind of the education, bringing on new members. They had two really successful grocery stores. They had a women's guild who was doing all kinds of work in Gary. They started a ice cream shop that was run by a youth guild of the cooperative network. And they eventually owned a gas station as well. And so, but one of the things that I think is really wonderful about you know this particular story is that part of what they were engaged in was like the actual conditions of Gary and the, the social and political 
like a uh, fight to actually create better conditions for black folks in Gary at that time. So they had created a five year strategy really to address um, the needs of the black community in Gary. They were doing political work as they were building these cooperatives that were actually providing, you know, for the larger community. Do you know what happened to it? Well, so, you know, like so many of our institutions, I think a lot of why it didn't persist for so long was like we see ramp ups of co-op activity in times that where the economic situation is really bad. Right. So the depression kind of hits and then some of those economic conditions are alleviated. But then also, I think a lot of what um, tends to happen in some institutions is just like the lack of succession planning, which is one thing I sometimes work on with clients. And, and so Jacob Reddix, who in large part, he was in education, he worked at Roosevelt School, was a large part of kind of getting the cooperative system off the ground. Mm-hmm. He also then moves on, I think, to um, a new position and he leaves Gary. And I think a lot of what happened in that instance was just that um, there may have not been the leadership. kind of succession planning that was yep. needed. Yep. And leadership transfer. <laughs> So I found out in um, Jessica Gordon Emhard's book, Collective Carriage, that there was a co-op at the college that I went to, Bluefield State College in Bluefield, West Virginia, mm-hmm. in the bookstore. And the students ran it. The students owned and ran the co-op. And they gave away seven or so scholarships, and they were doing extremely well until the state decided they passed a law that they could not have that kind of a business inside the school. It was a state mm. school. They were getting money from the state. And I, I I kind of, even before I found out what happened to it, I kind of expected that, that mm-hmm. there's some somebody, if it's too successful, somebody's going to come in the way because you end up getting power. And you mentioned that word, and I said I wanted to come back yeah. to that. What is your definition of power? And you were using that, that talking about black folks getting power. What do you mean mm-hmm. by that? For me, power, I think, is like the ability to actually control your destiny, right? So to me, power is definitely wrapped up in this idea of self-determination. It's not necessarily just influence, but it actually translates to the ways in which you can control, have access to the things that, you know, you need. Um, And so a lot of, you know, a lot of this work in doing co-op development is really not only just thinking about how can we build these institutions where maybe have jobs if it's a worker co-op or there's access now to a particular service or good uh, based off of the co-op, but also how do we think about the politics of co-op development? How do we join in cooperative networks to build and leverage power to actually change social economic conditions, not just for co-op members, but for broader communities and oppressed peoples? And so I think a lot of you know, and, one, and, and that's, I think, one of the conversations that has been happening more often recently, mm-hmm. but that we need to also lean into a little bit. It's just trying to think about if folks in the cooperative movement are uh, committed to actually changing conditions, we have to think beyond just a co-op for co-op's sake. And so how do we actually use co-ops maybe as a tool to build a completely different political economy? And part of that is building power and being connected to other movements. And I think specifically in the black community, I think that's what we've seen. So, you know, even in thinking about a lot of times co-op development was linked uh, with black controlled education or um, the fight for uh, rights and political power. 
Um, I think the Mississippi uh, Democratic Freedom Party is a really good example of that, the work of Fannie Lou Hamer, right? In part, a lot of the work early on is really contesting for electoral power and trying to um, move in in that sphere, Mm -hmm. but later also realizing the backlash that people in the South were receiving, right, just in terms of registering to vote, if they were organizing, if they were vocal. And um, Freedom Farm, that is founded by... Fannie Lou Hamer in part becomes a way to address that and also to build institutions that just simply that serve us and that we control and that we own. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's many ways we can contest for power. And I think co-ops are an important piece of that, but they can't be the entire thing. So Freedom Farm. And I've had people on here, particularly from the Federation of Southern Co-ops, talked about when when they tried to vote in the 60s, then they got kicked off the farm that they were sharecropping or people wouldn't sell them gas or all kinds of different kinds of ways that folks retaliated if people wanted to vote, as an example. And so one thing that happened was people formed co-ops, mm-hmm. pooling together. And you've already mentioned the fifth principle, training, education, and information of cooperation. And you mentioned the sixth principle, not by name, but cooperation among co-ops, co-ops helping co-ops to get a bigger network and create, I like you, you said political economics. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Creating power mm-hmm. economically yeah. and politically. Yeah, and I think that's a large part of the black radical tradition, right, or black resistance has been, you know, practicing cooperation, whether it's formal co-ops or Early on, even as we see um, societies of freed slaves or runaway slaves, right, Um, how we built community, how we built systems and networks and use mutualism to actually help free enslaved folks who, you know, were in bondage. Right? It's been the way that we've been able to survive, thrive and also create community and try to, you know, create the lives in the communities that we need it at any given time in history. So we create all of these different kinds of institutions. They could be churches, historically black colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. And you've helped to create or you're working in the law clinic. So just take a minute because we got to go to our mm-hmm. next break. But what, what does the law clinic do? What's its main function mm-hmm. or mission? Mm-hmm. So we provide, if I were to put it simply, we provide free legal support to community-based organizations to determine their own futures, right? One of the things like for me in this work is like at our best, what we're doing is actually providing legal support so people can determine what their communities look like. And a lot of that is cooperatives, but it goes way beyond cooperatives. And that's why I like to use, you know, the framework of solidarity economy because we're not only just building cooperative businesses, we're building all kinds of institutions that actually serve or are owned by communities and collectives. So we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, I would like for you to give us some examples of different co-ops that you have helped, that the clinic have helped, the co-ops, what they do, how many members it, to the extent you know it, and what kind of legal advice have you done, have you helped them with? Mm-hmm. We're going to take our second break. This wealth thing that you talked about, because there's a wealth that, in terms of money, financial wealth, whites have 10 times more wealth 
than black families, but you just you open it up to social wealth, mm-hmm. uh, so many different ways, self worth, self wealth, so many different ways of measuring wealth. We'll be mm-hmm. right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Renee Hatcher on with us this morning. She is an attorney out of Chicago, grew up in Gary, Indiana. And Renee, we've been on air now going on our 10th year. And it's been extremely exciting. And the National Cooperative Bank has been our sponsor all of these years. And they've been just a great sponsor. Uh, NCB's mission is to support uh, America's co-ops and their members by providing innovative financial services, particularly in low-income communities. And low-income communities, are a lot of blacks and browns live in low-income communities. So they, they can be a good resource. Um, have you been able to use them at all in any of the pro, um so not necessarily in, in my work here in Chicago. I think that um, folks or cooperatives in Chicago a lot of times are tapping into what might be some local resources uh, for co-ops. And it's actually been really exciting because we most recently got um, the city of Chicago to earmark funds to support cooperatives. But, you know, also just simply want to commend you on like 10 years of the podcast, which I think has been really important to educate and activate people around co-ops and also for folks to understand like what the universe of this work can be and how cooperatives can be tools to address so many social problems, um, but also uh, a way in which we can think about creating a completely different society. Fantastic. Yeah, it has been 10 years. We were only going to be on one month the month of October, mm, mm-hmm. and um, I enjoy it. I really enjoy talking to people like you. I learn so much from you. So tell me about the different uh, co-ops you've been working with in the law clinic. Yeah, so we, again, as I said, we provide free legal support to co-ops. I would say a lot of our work has been focusing on worker co-ops more recently, and as we've seen a rise in worker co-ops here in the city of Chicago but also housing co-ops, and we work with a number of um, artist collectives or art co-ops, as well as cooperative grocery store initiatives that have been started here in the city. And, you know, I, re- I feel really lucky to be able to do this work in part because I learn a lot from my clients, our clients at the clinic. I think a lot of it is really kind of beautiful freedom dreaming or folks really trying to take the levers and build institutions that are addressing their, you know, the issues that they see in their own neighborhoods. So some of our you know, specific clients that have either talked about us publicly or given us permission to you know, talk about that work publicly are, I think, Shy Fresh Kitchen, which I believe you may have had the founder on, Camille Kerr. Yes. Um, he, that's based here in the city of Chicago. Shy Fresh Kitchen is a worker co-op that provides meal prep, move, meal services that are owned by black women who've had previous experience with the carceral state or carceral system. Wait a minute, wait a minute, um, wait a minute. I don't know if everybody will understand you when you said that way. They've had conflict with the with with the legal systems. They've been incarcerated. Yes, exactly. Okay. So I hate to use I I have stopped using the term criminal justice because there's nothing about our, our legal 
criminal system that produces justice. So, you know, again, Particularly like a lot of for times, black folk and poor people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So Shy Fresh Kitchen, you know, it's, I think, a wonderful example of a worker co-op here that we've done some work with. Also, we've worked with uh, worker co-ops like Blue Tin Production, which is a worker co-op owned by refugee women, primarily women of color, that are really interrupting and disrupting the fashion industry and really bringing attention to this idea of fast fashion, which primarily exploits women of color around the world in developing countries um, in thinking about the way in which um, sweatshops, again, exploit labor of people of color. And so a lot of their work is really pushing forward on, on how ethical fashion is possible and also using this model of a worker cooperative to do it. So they've done some really wonderful work. Yeah, so those are two examples of our clients. You know, we work with a range of different kinds of clients from year to year. And we also do advocacy projects related to issues of economic or racial justice. And so we've worked on projects around basic income and reparations, local reparations campaigns, but also, you know, are working right now mostly on an initiative that the city of Chicago put forward, community wealth building. So trying to really build out tools and resources for worker cooperatives and housing cooperatives and community land trusts, as well as newer tools like community investment vehicles. So trying to provide information, trying to make the you know, the legal part of some of this work really accessible and easy for folks to access, understand, and also navigate as they create their own plans for, you know, the institutions that they're building. So are you mainly doing the work to create these co-ops? Yeah, a lot of, I would say a lot of our clients are startups. And so we might work with a starter worker co-op from the very beginning. We also work with established cooperatives or other kinds of community orgs or businesses. So it could be a range of things. We do everything except go to court. Sometimes I think it's easier for folks to think about it like that. We are doing all of the startup and helping folks understand like or structure their governance, ways in which they might figure out conflict resolution processes within their organization or cooperative. We help draft contracts, review different lease agreements, also just counsel folks on industry regulations or things that they need to, to understand in, in terms of that particular industry or the regulations that are applicable. So it's, it's you know, again, it's like everything that comes up when you are um, starting a new business, a new organization, but also operating one. Do you get into so HR kind of law? HR law? Yeah. So a lot of times we might do employee handbooks. Um, more recently, which I have really loved uh, a lot of this work, we are getting more and more requests for, for organizations, whether they're nonprofits or for-profits, to come up with more progressive policies related to HR. So really folks trying to rethink and how they can embed their values in their organization or into their cooperative. Mm -hmm. And so that could be like the leave policy or trying to think through a better way, for example, to handle conflict resolution within an organization and really trying to center you know, the, the principles of organizations r related to care, related to cooperation, related to solidarity. Um, because I will say like the majority of those policies, if you look at examples or defaults, a lot of it is based off of exploitation. 
a lot of it is based off of this idea that, you know, you have an employer and you have an employee. And ultimately, there is a floor that the law provides, right? So, for example, minimum wage. But we shouldn't just pay people minimum wage because that's what the law requires. We should really think about, like, what are the wages that we can pay to really allow folks to live quality lives, <laughs> right, to thrive. So, yeah, we do a lot of work around HR, but a lot of it is really based off of how can we do HR differently to center the needs of employees, just people in general, communities as well. So are you finding that a capitalistic company, one that has been capitalistic, designed mm -hmm. the normal business, are they uh, sort of open to this, let's look at better ways of, of working with employees where this antagonism of how can I get the most productivity, the most work out of them and pay them the least, that has been the model that I see the U.S. has worked on. Even in Gary, the reason it's Rust Belt because the U.S. Steel or the automobile industry moved the plants to places they could get cheaper labor. So, have yeah, you I would say <laughs> I would say it definitely depends. Right. And it's an interesting moment to think about it because of the labor market and the fact that, you know, the pandemic, the great resignation and everybody is looking. Well, a lot of folks are still looking to staff up or to hire. And I think that's because the labor market just has become more competitive for employers to actually hire the folks that they need. Um, and I think that a lot of the traditional businesses have tried to find ways to respond to that. But they're responding mostly in part because they need to, they have to, they have to. They, if they need to actually hire someone. Other than that, I do, I think that folks understand, especially in the nonprofit sector, that it's not helpful and it's not in furtherance of whatever their charitable mission is to exploit their employees. And so trying to find alternative ways to govern nonprofits, trying to find alternative ways to provide support to employees and that starts with you know often that starts with the hr policy okay i really like chai fresh uh, i like the um artists you were talking about the artists in particular in the textile industry mm -hmm. so you hit on um there i have there are four types of of, of co-ops and the first one is worker co-op you've talked about them a lot and that's mm -hmm. if it's owned and controlled by the employees then it's a worker co-op and that power you talked about happens when workers decide you know, the flexibility of when they're going to come to work and how everything is covered but how might they change uh, when they come in and so forth and well, how much money they make and if it's owned and controlled by the persons that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. And you mentioned housing co-ops and you mentioned food co-ops. Food co-ops are normally consumer co-ops, but sometimes they could be a worker co-op where the workers own it. Mm -hmm. uh, credit unions are consumer co-ops. And then uh, if a group of people come together, a group of people or businesses come together to purchase products or services, um, artists are doing this, farmers are doing this, then it's called a purchaser cooperative. So they've been around a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. The same thing if a group of people or businesses come together to market their products or services, then it's called a marketing co-op or a producer co-op. And you got Cabot Creamery, Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray, 
there's an artist group in Pittsburgh uh, called Ujama, which are black women, and they've come together and formed the co-op, and they have a storefront. Then it's a marketing co-op or a producer co-op. Mm-hmm. So those are the four types, and you've talked about working with a number of them, and that sounds like it would be fun and creative. <laughs> It definitely can be, and mostly is, I will say. I will tell you, you know, the the work that I always get really excited by is, is when cooperatives are really leading with their values, and also those co-ops that are connected to a larger social movement and kind of leading with that in the work that they do. I think that, you know, we think about co-ops as businesses, and they are businesses, but I have also seen folks use co-ops simply as a way to organize. And so, you know, the business part of it allows folks to actually sustain themselves, to get paid, but also that they're doing political organizing in those spaces. And so that's really the work that I get most excited about and actually think has the most potential to really make change, you know, in the context of of, uh, our work in the country. Fantastic. And you said you love your work, right? You do love your work? I do. Well... Yes, I enjoy my work. I will say that. Do you teach classes? I teach. Yes, I teach classes. So in addition to teaching my clinic course in which the students are actually representing clients and I'm supervising them along with my colleagues, I also recently taught critical race feminism. Um, I regularly teach business associations law, which kind of teaches students just simply about different entities that businesses I'm going to cut you off because we're going to take our final break and we'll come back and talk more about your classes but I really want to get into the future you can sort of predict how we can use co-ops to both resist and be self-determination we'll be right back Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op, and we're talking to Renee Hatcher today, and she's in Chicago. So you were telling us about your classes that you are teaching. Mm-hmm. Yes. So as I mentioned, so I teach a, a clinic class, which essentially is teaching the students how to practice law, you know, specific to our clients, which are cooperatives and community-based businesses. And then also I teach a critical race feminism class, you know, teaching critical race theory, but also taking a feminist lens to the progression of um, that scholarship and that work. And then also regularly I teach a business associations course, which is teaching students just about how entities, business law actually works, both theoretically and in practice. So, yeah, I very much enjoy teaching. And I also, you know, for me, I think part of it, too, is being able to work with students in practicing law. So, yeah, yeah, the law for me is always really practical and trying to think about how how do we either navigate it or how do we use it as a tool and also trying to really get students to think and new lawyers to think critically about how the law shapes society, how it shapes our economy, how it's harmful, um, specifically to communities who are historically oppressed in this country. So, yeah, so teaching, I, I think, has been, you know, really wonderful part of the work that I get to do. So you've really combined your mother's career and your dad. You're a teacher and a lawyer. I guess so, yes. In a, in a way, I could, yes. I've actually never thought about it that way. 
And then I get to do, you know, really wonderful just work here in Chicago in coalition with folks, in collaboration with folks, uh, a good colleague and comrade of mine, Stacey Sutton, who is a professor at UIC's urban planning uh, department. She's been, been on collaborating. The, she's been on the show a couple of times. Yes. yes. I really, really like her work. Yeah, yeah. She does fantastic work. We get to work together a lot on some of the initiatives and, and coalitions that have formed here in the city of Chicago. And most recently, we've uh, started a solidarity economy law and policy initiative that's based at the Urban Planning um, Center at, at UIC. And so part of the work that we're doing together right now is really trying to think about and build out the infrastructure um, for the larger cooperative ecosystem here in Chicago. And I'm you know, really happy to say that the city of Chicago has been supporting some of that work more recently and also supporting co-ops, co-op housing co-ops, worker co-ops, community land trusts, and with financial support and with TA support here in the city most recently. So have you come across the name Herb Fisher? He's an attorney. I haven't. Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, he was in housing, but he's he retired now, closed his office, and he's in Florida. Herb is probably 91 or 92, but he's, he was so active in the housing, particularly in, well, all over the U.S., but particularly in Chicago. His office was in Chicago. And he and another guy named Roger Wilcox, when I was first got into the National Association of Housing Co-ops, they would sit me at their knee and teach me about co-ops. Mm-hmm. Um, and delightful, delightful people. So he's still on the Development and Preservation Committee. Herb is in uh, for the National Association of Housing Co-ops. And unfortunately, Roger passed away a couple of years ago at 97 years old. So they did a lot, a lot of good in the housing market. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. I think that, you know, one of the things that that makes me think about is just like the folks who have been so seminal in activating people around cooperative development and what this work can be and also just how we need we need more of us and your show is in part you know hopefully is a large part of that and like actually educating folks about co-ops and how they can be used yeah and just looping it back i think part of what i find valuable about teaching at a law school is also trying to train lawyers around this work and also um, to bring more of them right into the space to provide legal support. So, do you know the name Anthony Cook, Georgetown Law? I don't. I want to get you two together. Okay. He's starting a clinic at Georgetown in D.C. <laughs> uh, and he wants to go after food solidarity and housing. That's where he's starting mm-hmm. his clinic. That's create that in 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 the Washington D.C. area, D.M.V. A brother out of out of Mississippi, so good brother. That's fantastic. No, I think you know it's it's funny. Law school clinics have actually been a large part of I think the the legal support for cooperatives, in part because we don't always have the same kinds of restrictions as legal services organizations, and you know so so it allows for us to do some of that work. So, future. How do you see the future? How do you how do you see particularly with this? whole co-op and solidarity economy. What do you see for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, so one of the the initiatives, again, going uh, back to some of the things that are happening here in Chicago, 
part of what we're trying to do is, is to better connect some of the resist and build work. So part of what that's looked like for us, or a recent initiative has been what we refer to as PASS, which is, stands for Partners for Abolition, Transformation, Healing, and Solidarity. Wow. And so that has been a coalition space here in Chicago where we're trying to connect grassroots organizations that have been doing and continuously do really wonderful organizing work uh, and really trying to work on issues, for example, of state violence, of structural inequality, of you know race and racism and the way in which it gets embedded in place and space and resources. And we're trying to link that to, you know, solidarity economy development. Um, so really trying to connect these pieces more and more and find ways that we can be really intentional to thread movements together. So I think that's part of what's really exciting for me. I am really encouraged by so much of the work that's happening around the country. There's a number of organizations and I think formations that are kind of taking hold specific to black cooperative development and uh, so some of that is really exciting. And again, I think the moment for me and I think what's most important for me right now is like, how do we make sure that we aren't just building co-ops to exist within the system that we have? Like, how can we leverage co-op development? How can we build co-ops and other kinds of institutions really to transform local communities, you know, regional economies, thinking about like what our big goal is and how we're making progress on that. And so part of that, again, like I think for me is using this as a strategy, but also thinking about additional strategies that we have to engage, whether that be electoral work that folks are doing, whether that be other types of uh, political organizing, direct action, you know, really thinking about using all the tools in our toolbox to create you know, change in the ways that we need to to give people power so that they have their self-determination. So we're not just resisting racism, but we're determining our future and doing exactly. it collectively. Exactly, as we have always done. Yes, yeah, and, and we don't celebrate that enough, I don't think. I mean, when you, again, go back to churches, other institutions, go to, to historically black colleges and universities, and most of them, we didn't have much of anything when we started them or when mm -hmm. those folks that started them started them. And we've created a lot from those institutions. And your father got elected in 68 in Gary, 1960? Got elected in 67 and took office in 68. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Again, I think at the time, I think that was in part trying to think about and build black political power. As I mentioned, you know, he, he was also one of the conveners for the 1972 Black Political Convention, which took place in Gary, which was, in my mind, a really wonderful experiment around participatory democracy, where Black folks across the country were creating a process to elect delegates to actually discuss and create a national Black political agenda. Um, and so part of what came out of that uh, was a proliferation of Black elected officials, you know, many of which were local and actually dealing with things kind of on a, a community level. Um, but also it was a, I think the a first major convening where black folks across the political spectrum were really discussing issues and coming up with a national agenda. What would you like to leave people with in the last minute? Yeah, I would like to leave people with, 
You know, I think the most important thing about this work and for folks who are interested in it is believing that things can be different. And I think co-op development can be one way in which to get us there. So as we move forward, how do we think about activating the folks around us, organizing our lives and the way in which we make change differently? And how can co-op development be a part of the work that folks are doing across the spectrum? Across the spectrum, throughout the nation, throughout all of those different types of co-ops, getting ownership. But I tell you, one of the things we talked about a little bit, when co-ops give people voice and when people are heard, they get self-worth. That's part of the worth that we're talking about. Thank you. Thank you very much, Renee, for being on with us today. And everybody out there, we'll be back next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power.